Hi, this is Chris Kipp, lead pastor of Renaissance Church in Richmond, Texas. Thank you for streaming or downloading this podcast today. I hope this resource blesses you. If you haven't joined us at a worship gathering or at a house church yet, we want you to come. You can find all that information and more at rin-church.org. I pray that you are encouraged today by the proclamation of God's word. We are going to be in Psalm 24 as, as we've been singing and interacting with uh, this morning. So if you want to start turning there with me, um, we had the chance, uh, Casey and the kids and I had the chance to go to Round Rock to visit my dad and of course my sister and brother-in-law and their kids came. We celebrated a birthday. It was a great time. And uh, my grandparents live next door to my, my dad. They are 92 and 93, right? That's awesome. I, I, I'm praying those genes are down on me somewhere, right? These, these long, long, long life genes. And, um, and we started talking, you know, and they're, you know, they're mostly, um, you know, bound to their home now because it's hard for them to get around. And um, they were just commenting on the state of things in our world from their perspective, and she's talking about you know inflation and shootings and Pride Month and just all the stuff that's going on in our world, and um, you know they're just voicing their concerns and you know we're talking about it and, and I said this, I said you know I think what what it's going to take in our in our world is a turning to the Lord, just just a turning. To the Lord. That's, that's what our world needs. We, we need a turning to the Lord. And we're going to look at this psalm that we've been interacting with. And it's, it's a revival song. It's a song written by David, King David. And David was a worshiper. He was a man after God's own heart. We, we learn that about David in the, in the kind of his life story that we, that we read about in scripture. And David is pinning this song. And what, what we learn about this song is that it was a period of revival in Israel. And I liken it to, if you're a Texas music fan, like I am, right? There's some songs that have references to the Alamo or to certain places in Texas. And you're like, woo, right? Yeah, like that was awesome, you know? And there's, it's like that. this song for the people of Israel, they're singing about when the Ark of the Covenant came back to the city of David, to Jerusalem. And it was a time of prosperity and they're winning battles and wars and, and, and things are being built and, and, and buildings are going up. And it's just like this time of amazing peace and prosperity. It was a time of revival. The word revive means to restore to life or consciousness. I have a book called uh, Longing for Revival. It's a great book written by two guys that are leaders of a, of a college campus uh, organization called uh, InterVarsity. And it's James Chung and Ryan Pfeiffer. And here's what they say about revival. Here's their definition. It's a season of breakthroughs in word, deed, and power that ushers in, I like this, a new normal of kingdom experience in fruitfulness, to be revived, to, to be brought back to life, to be brought back to a consciousness. And I think there's a sense that probably many, many people feel like 
things are going off the rails. And we need something to change. We, we need something to happen that sort of rights the, the situation. And I just believe that that's, that's called a revival. If you trace the history of Israel, if you trace the history of, of you know, Christianity, we have seasons of ebb and flow where things are, you know, the society is kind of submerging. And then there's this move of God and it changes the whole atmosphere. It becomes a new Normal, And I just want to ask, do you think we need a revival? Like, do you think, do you believe that's what we need? I I know that some of you, when you think of a revival, you're like, ah, I don't, like, I think of like a, maybe it was just like a Billy Graham crusade that you went to, and you, man, that's, that's revival. Or or you think of, uh, you know, I had one pastor said, Anything that didn't happen on Sunday or Wednesday night was a revival, okay? So like every special meeting we had, it's a revival dinner. It's a revival potluck. It's, it's a revival meeting. You know, it's, it was like everything that wasn't Sunday or was right. So you might have different ideas about revival, but it's this, it's, it's just simply coming back to life again, to be brought back to consciousness. Do we need a revival? And for all the talk of it, how do we experience it? What are the marks of a true revival? That's what I want us to look at today as we look at Psalm 24. You know, last week we started this series called A Summer in the Psalms. And what we're doing is just walking through some psalms, not all 150, okay? And we're not going to try to cover all those, but we're just kind of hand-selecting some. And we're going to be singing parts of those songs, uh, the psalms in our worship. So we're kind of interacting with them as we did this morning. I, I want to read this Psalm 24 if you want to join with me. We're going to have it on the screen for you if you want to follow along. Here's what it says. Verse 1, the earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord. For he laid its foundation on the seas and established it on the rivers. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not appealed to what is false or to an idol, and to who has not sworn deceitfully. Verse 5. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who inquire of him, who seek the face of of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. Then the king of glory will come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. Then the king of glory will come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord of armies. He is the king of glory. This is God's word. So here we have this psalm that's a revival song, and um, this, this, this last part, right, where the, the king of glory is coming in, it's, it's talking about the Ark of the Covenant, and, and I was reading this week, studying the history of the Ark, and there's so much in this psalm that has to do with the Ark of the Covenant that I thought we're just going to have to trace some history and make sense of it, and I think it's going to speak something fresh and very, very relevant to us today. And here's the first thing I want us to consider as we look at this psalm. It's this. True revival is a return to the fear of the Lord. Let me say it again. True revival 
is a return to the fear of the Lord. This, this psalm begins with this sweeping statement about God. And here's what he says, right? The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord. We've talked about how God owns it all, and if he's the owner, that means we're just stewards, right? We've, we've been talking about this concept. We keep coming back to this over and over again that God owns it all, and it says he laid its foundations on the seas and established it on the rivers. This idea for them, the sea was like chaos. It was, it was the place of the, di- the, of the deep. It was the abyss. It was like, you know, that, that's where the waves came and, and destroyed things and storms came off the sea, and so sea represented for them a, a sense of, of chaos, and it's like God creates this order in the midst of chaos, and he owns everything. And there's, it's a statement of worthiness. Like it's, it's hard to fathom a more sweeping statement of worthiness to say that literally everything on earth, everything you see, everything that you could, could behold, all the things that you don't even know about yet, like all of those things already belong to the Lord. And what kind of Lord is it? At the end, he's a Lord of armies. He's, he's strong and mighty. As I was studying the, the Ark of the Covenant, as you see this history, there was a time where Israel was a theocracy, meaning that God was king and he had prophets and judges that were leading the people. And in that time, it was kind of like what we experience now. It's like, a great judge would arise and people would come back to, to, to the Lord and, and it would be a, a revival and then that, that judge would die and then you know, people would go back to the idol worship and all that kind of stuff. It was just like over and over and over again. And there was a moment in the midst of one of the, the real downturns in, in Israel's history where the Philistines raided, uh, you know, after conquering a, a town, they raided and they took the Ark of the Covenant back to their cities. It went to five different cities. And in every city where they would take the Ark of the Covenant, all of a sudden there would just be like these these terrible things would happen. Fear and panic would come over the people. There was like an infestation of mice and probably some sort of like uh, plague would hit them, like some illness, and they would have tumors. Like people would start breaking out tumors and all these people would die. And then they would say, you know, we think it's the Ark of the Covenant. We've got to get out of here. And they would move it to another city. And the same thing would happen again. There's like fear and panic and chaos and tumors and and plagues. And then they would, so five times they do this. And after the fifth time, that fifth king is like, please, like we've got to get this thing out of here. Like, are, are we not seeing a pattern here? And so we've got to take it back. And they inquire of their priests and say like, what do we do? And they tell them, make a cart, right? And put the ark on there and make a box. And we want you to make five golden replicas of tumors and mice and put them inside the box and put two cows on the front of it and just let them go. Like, send them back. And here's the point. You could conquer Israel, but you could not conquer the God of Israel. He's the God who stands on his own two feet. We sometimes think when we talk about revival, we got to get God back in here. We got to prop him up. If we get the right politicians in place, we could prop God back up. 
If we could just get the church going again, we'll prop God back. If we could have better services, we had better songs. If we could just, we, you know, it's like we think through our efforts, through our evangelism, that we're, we're like, we're just propping him up. And it's like, no, no, the exact opposite of tr- is true. He's the one who's holding us up. If, if God was not sustaining us, if, if God was not working in our lives, if, if the spirit of God was not moving and breathing into us, we would, be, we would be nothing. The earth belongs to the Lord. He's strong. He's mighty. He got himself out of a jam, okay? And he's not nervous right now. Did you know that? God looks at our world and he's not nervous because you can conquer the church, you can conquer God's people, but you will never, ever, ever conquer God. And true revival is a return to the fear of the Lord. There's this passage in 1 Samuel where the cart comes back and it comes back to a, a Jewish uh, town. It was called Beth Shemesh. And uh, as the cart came back, the people were so excited. Like, it's here, right? The ark is here. And they, they have this kind of this celebration and they, they take the ark off of the cart and they, they chop up the, the cart and they burn the wood and they put the cows and they cut them up and they you know, make a sacrifice. And they, it's like this big time of, of celebration. It, but some guys... They open the ark and they look into it. And here's what it says. Verse 19. God struck down the people of Beth Shemesh because they looked inside the ark of the Lord. He struck down 70 persons. The people mourned because the Lord struck them with a great slaughter. The people of Beth Shemesh asked, here's what they asked. Who is able to stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God, to whom should the ark go from here? And as David's writing this psalm, and he's saying, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? I think he's picturing this moment out of their history where it's like, even when it came back to our people and we mishandled it, right? We, 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 we did things with it that we weren't supposed to do. And God's like, no, I'm holy. There's something about this reverence and this fear of the Lord that right-sizes us, right? Because we all live with the assumption that this is a big story about us. And when something like this happens, we realize, no, no, this is a great, grand story that's about him. And he loves us, but it's not about us. There's a moment in Acts chapter 5 in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira. There's crazy generosities happening in the early church, and they all are thinking, like, literally, Jesus is coming back maybe tomorrow. So who needs money? So they would sell a property, and they would give all of it to the church, like literally all of it to the, to the church, and they would distribute it to the people that had needs. And Ananias and Sapphira gave most of it but they told everyone that they gave all of it and they kept a little bit for themselves, right? And you probably know the story, right? They come and they offer their gifts and, and Peter says, why has Satan so filled your heart that you would lie to the Holy Spirit? And, and, and the husband, Ananias, falls over dead. And the, talk about being like a weird day at church, right? The, the, the other disciples are like, well, I, what do we do with a dead body? It's like carry the guy out and, 
And, and so there's this Sapphira. The wife comes in. She doesn't know about the husband. And, and he says this thing like, how is the, how Satan so filled your heart that you would lie to the Holy Spirit? And she falls over dead. And it says, great fear came over the church. Great fear came over all those who heard about what had happened. And it says, revival breaks out. People are being healed. There's this, there's this sort of awe of like, oh, he's God. He stands on his own two feet. He's the Lord, strong and mighty, mighty in battle. There's stories from the Great Awakening that swept our land. And uh, in the, those stories, the preachers would be preaching at these meetings and people would be crying out in the middle of the, of the sermon. And it was not like, a, like, woo, amen. It was like a, they were crying out almost like in anguish because they were so troubled about their own sin. They had just this awe, this fear of the Lord. Every true revival is a return to the fear of the Lord. And this is so good for us to remember that when we can just see him for what he really is and truly is, worship is no longer about propping him up with some good songs. It's like worship is the overflow of the heart of like, oh my gosh, you are so good. You are so holy. You are so true. You're God. It's, it just becomes the, the overflow of our hearts. Leads me to my second point is that true revival is a return to the presence of the Lord. The first was that it's a return to the fear of the Lord. The second is that it's a return to the presence of the Lord. And we see this in the song here we have in, in verse three, he's, he gives the, you know, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart who has not appealed to what is false and who has not sworn deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation, such as the generation of those who inquire of him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. It's a return to the presence of the Lord. And as you learn about the ark, and the ark came about because Moses goes up the mountain in Sinai and the mountain's literally on fire and there's smoke covering it and all the people are just kind of like, ha, ah, like in fear. And Moses comes up into the, the cloud, the, the smoke and the fire, and God just begins to tell him, give him instructions for the people. And one of the things he says is, you're to build for me an ark. And he describes the ark and how big it is and how to build it and what it should look like. And it's one of the ancient treasures that many people are still searching for and trying to figure out where it is. It went missing centuries and centuries ago. And this ark was literally the presence of God among them. Like when they opened it and looked into it, what, what they experienced was this overwhelming holy presence of God. And that's what it meant for these people. They understood like this is, this is what we would call the manifest presence of God. In Exodus 25, 20, here's what the Lord promises Moses after he gives him the instructions. He says, I will meet with you there. I will speak with you. Talk about the presence and this reveals something that we instinctively know about God, that God can own it all. 
And he can be the omnipresent one who's present everywhere at all times, and yet people live completely unaware of his presence. Does that make sense? He's here, he's everywhere, he sees everything, he knows it all, he's present everywhere, and yet most of us live as if he's not, because we're unaware. And yet, there's a way in that, God can, that God can be present in which we are distinctly, consciously aware. Many of you know what I'm talking about. I remember when I uh, came to Christ, I was at a summer camp in Colorado. I've told you the story before. Uh, it's 35 people. We're sitting Indian style. They didn't have chairs, okay? This was super primitive. It was not like, you know, the slides, the water slides and the smoke and the lights and the worship team. It was like this guy's oatmeal granola wife was sitting Indian style with her classical guitar singing Sanctuary. You know, you know, you know what I'm talking about? Right? This was not what you think of when you think of summer camp, okay? And then this guy would begin to preach, and he would preach with just like this, like tears in his eyes. It was like this conviction of the reality of Jesus and what he'd done for us. And I'm sitting there, and I experienced for the first time the presence of the Lord. And here's what it felt like to me at, the, at that point. Have you ever been to the doctor to get an x-ray and they put like that, that lead blanket over you, right, to make sure that the rays don't hit things they're not supposed to hit? It almost felt like that. It was just like the weight of the glory of God where you're just like, wow. And I, I experienced this reality that the scriptures tell us about that he can be very distinctly, consciously aware. It was like he's, he's present in that way, in every revival, begins with that. People, like we sing about, who just want to seek the face of the God of Jacob. I uh, read a story. This is from uh, A.W. Tozer's book, The Purpose of Man. And he, he tells a story about a salesman who had gone into a, a town where Charles Finney was holding a revival. And um, he sensed that something was happening. As he walked into town, he could feel like there's like a buzz, like what's happening here? There's something going on. And the first man that he met, he asked him, you know, like what's happening? And the man said, there's a revival in this town. God is here. And people are being converted. Saloons are being closed up. Halfway houses are being nailed shut. Men and women are cleaning up. Evil men are quitting their daily habits and getting right with God. God is in this place, which we know that God is everywhere at all times. And yet somehow they knew there's something is happening here that we cannot explain. It is the presence of God in manifest form. Boom. This reveals something else about our condition. He talks about those who could stand in the holy place, right? who could ascend the hill. And it reveals that we can be in the place, in worship, in the place of worship without being in the presence. And you know that, right? You can go to church. It's great. And not be in the presence of God. There's, there's this thing. There's, a, there's something that happens. There's a change. There's, there's this point where you, you are experiencing, you are 
enjoying the presence of God, the conscious awareness. There's a story of Blaise Pascal, the really kind of a father of, of mathematics, and uh, he was incredibly smart young man. I think as a teenager, he was writing mathematics books that were like astounding people, right? So this guy was a prodigy, and uh, one of the greatest minds that ever lived. He became a great uh, philosopher, mathematician, thinker. But one night, Blaise Pascal meets God, and it changed his entire life. He, he wrote down his experience on a piece of paper while it was still fresh in his mind. And according to his testimony, from 10.30 p.m. till 12.30 a.m., he was overwhelmed by the presence of God. What we're talking about, the manifest presence of God. To express what he's experiencing, he wrote one word, fire. He was neither a fanatic he was not an ignorant farmer with a hayseed back of his ears. He was a great intellectual person. And yet God has this moment where he breaks through all of that. And following this experience, he, he writes down the prayer that he prayed. And here's what he prayed. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned God of Jesus Christ, thy God shall be my God. Forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. He's only found by the ways taught in the gospel. Righteous Father, the world has not known thee. He's present everywhere. The world has not known thee, but I have known thee. Joy, 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 tears of joy. He would fold up that prayer and he would keep it in the pocket of his jacket for the rest of his life. He never wanted to forget the presence of God. I know if you've never experienced the presence of God, you're like, hmm, I don't know about that. But friends, Every revival comes from a return to the presence of the Lord. And here's the good news. There's access to it. Who, who can do this? Well, clean hands, what we talked about, we sing about. That, that would mean clear of evil, like your, your hands are clean, like you're not pursuing things that you know are, are not of God. You're not using your body in a way which would dishonor God. This is what um, Paul talks about in, in Corinthians when he's talking about sexual immorality. And he says, like, flee all that stuff, right? Because all the other sins that we commit are outside of our body. But don't you know, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Clean hands. And then he says, pure heart. We, um, while we were in Round Rock, we went to um, Blue Hole in Georgetown, which is super cool. We're playing out there in the water. And um, you know how this goes, like in these like kind of creeks, it, it looks super clean until you start stepping into it, right? Because what happens? All the mud mixes up. It starts to look like the Brazos River all of a sudden, right? And, and all the sediments, you know, we're trying to dig up rocks so we can skip them, right? And it's just, it gets real muddied. And this word, uh, a pure heart, would be like unmuddied. 
Like it's, it's singular. It's, it's, got, it's got this singular desire of like, I want God. I desire him. And the desire for God, it, it changes how we live, right? It's like, I, I'll let that go and I'm not gonna do that anymore. I'm not gonna look at that. It's like, because I just want him. Like something's changed in me and I want him. Clean hands, pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol. He's not appealed to what is false or sworn deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord. So true revival is a return to the fear of the Lord. It's a return to the presence of the Lord. But here's the third thing. True revival is personal and then it is communal. Let me say that again. True revival is personal and then it is a communal. The psalm ends with this call and response, and this would be the people that are out in front of the procession of the ark that's coming into the city of David, into Jerusalem, right? And David's had this tabernacle built just like Moses had received the, the blueprint on the mountain, and he, he builds it again. There's the tabernacle. He's bringing it back, and, and of course, the first time was a, a bit of a debacle, but they, they figured it out the second time, and they're marching it in, and they get to the gates of Jerusalem, and the gatekeeper shouts out to them, and here's what he says. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. Then the king of glory will come in. And of course, the guy at the gate's like, who? Who is the king of glory? And he responds, he's the one who stands on his own two feet. The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. And he calls out again, lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors, and then the king of glory will come in. Remember, the ark is the manifest presence of God. It's like it's, it's going to come into the city. This is how it was meant to be. And again, he's like, who? Who is he, this king of glory? Oh, he's the God who can stand on his own two feet. The Lord of armies. He is the king of glory. And what happens is the, the one who with clean hands and pure heart who could go into the presence of the Lord leads to a generation. Such is the generation of those who seek your face, God of Jacob. And a generation is a group of people in a specific time period. And he's saying, look, there's, there's a one, it's individual, right? It's personal, it's me and you. There was a, a, an evangelist, his name was uh, Gypsy Smith. That's what he went by, Rodney Gypsy Smith. And he was once asked how to start a revival. And here's what he said. He said, go home, lock yourself in your room, kneel down in the middle of the floor, and with a piece of chalk, draw a circle around yourself. And there on your knees, pray fervently and brokenly that God would start a revival within that circle. That's how you start a revival. You get alone and you pray, God, revive me. I need it. I, I, I desire you most of the time, but I want more than that. I, I want your presence. I know there's more, God. I want to experience you. And he said, if you will just do that, that's how you start a revival because it starts 
individually, personally, every revival happened through revived people. And then there became a generation of people who said, we want that. 20 years after the ark comes back into the, this little village of Beth Shemesh, of course, after the whole like 70 people dying, they're like, oh, maybe we should move in on somewhere else. And another guy comes and he brings it up to his house, which was up on a hill. And he sets the ark there and he consecrates his son to guard the ark there. In 20 years, it sits there. And this guy just cares for the ark and guards it. And this says all of a sudden, the people of Israel begin to long for the Lord. They begin to long for God. One man who has clean hands and a pure heart who's just watching the ark. And then 20 years and a generation of people are longing for the presence of God. Such is the generation and when that ark comes into the city, David is dancing. You probably know the story. His wife is embarrassed. Now, wives, let's be honest. We, as husbands, we like to embarrass you, okay? We like to do things every now and then in the store, you know, in public. We want to wear things or say things that just sort of make you a little bit crazy, okay? There's some sort of weird joy in that for us, okay? We're sorry, but that's not what was happening with David. David is, he's overwhelmed with joy because he recognizes what is actually happening. That the presence of God is coming back into the city. And he's dancing with all of his might. I mean, he's just like, you know, going bananas out there and all the people are, are uh, worshiping, right? And every six steps, they sacrifice an animal because they're like, ah, this is crazy. You know, it's just like, we, we don't want to offend them this time. Right? We're going to make sure we do it the right way. And, and they're just dancing and the, she gets all upset and she's like, despises him in her heart. And David sees it come back in his generation. But guess where that started? It started with David as a young man tending sheep and staring out into a vast sky of stars and just saying, God, I desire you. I want you. It starts with David learning to play the lyre, whatever it was he played, right? In his room by himself and just singing to God. God, I want you. I want your presence. And so David sees it in his generation come out, but it starts in secret, quiet places with people who long for the presence of God, the fear of the Lord. It's personal, and then it's communal. And here's what that means for us. You can't vote in a revival. I know we know that, but we have to hear that. It's not a policy that gets passed to make a revival come. Social change is the, is the secondary effect of the primary cause of the people of God returning to the fear of the Lord and the presence of the Lord. It's individual. And then it's communal. So, let me close it this way. What about you? Do you think we need a revival? Do you feel it? Do you feel the world is broken like the song that we sing? We do. We do. So 
Do you know the fear of the Lord? Do you long for his presence? Does your longing change your living? And are you willing to seek him personally? If so, you're ripe for revival. Um, ancient Jewish, Jewish texts tell us that they, uh, the, the, the priests and those that would lead the synagogue, would, they would use this psalm at the beginning of the week, which would be Sunday for them. And they would recite this song every week on Sunday, Psalm 24. Everyone, please turn to Psalm 24 in your hymn book. We're going to sing it again this, this Sunday morning. And they would sing the song or recite the song together, right? And they would, they, you know, every week. Which means that there was a Sunday that we call Palm Sunday where Jesus is walking into Jerusalem probably right around the moment that they're getting out their hymnals and turning to Psalm 24, and they're going to recite the revival song. Remember when it was so awesome under David? That was so cool. And they're rehearsing their past, and they're missing the present. The king of glory had come into the city. The manifest presence of God had come into the city, but he didn't come in with a big procession of this people sacrificing animals and you know, yelling at the gates. He came out with peasants and people laying their coats on the ground and putting whatever palm branch they could find, ripping it off a tree and laying on the ground so that they could say, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The king of glory, the one strong and mighty, was coming into the city, but not like they expected. He was mighty in battle, but it wasn't defeating the Roman Empire. It was the battle for your heart and soul, for your salvation, the battle against sin and death. He was going to pay the ultimate penalty for every one of us who does not have clean hands and a pure heart without him. And he would win. He won. He rose on the third day. And because his hands were truly clean and his heart was truly pure, he not only ascended the hill of the Lord, he ascended to the throne of God and sits at the right hand of the Father forever. He stands on his own two feet. The author of Hebrews says this about that reality. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, get this, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, pure hearts, and our bodies washed in pure water, clean hands. I want you to know, Jesus made a way for us. 
and we can go right in with boldness. And we can be what we call the righteous unrighteous, which means this, we're not perfect yet. I make mistakes all the time. I sin all the time. I have crazy thoughts that are whack. I say things, do things, and I'm like, where did that come from? Oh my gosh, that is sin. Lord, forgive me. I do it all the time, but guess what? I am righteous. How? Why? Because one with clean hands and a pure heart has done it for me. And the same is for you. But we must return to the fear of the Lord, the presence of the Lord. We must seek each of us for our own selves. And here's where I'll end. There's this incredible turning at the end of the book in Revelation. And instead of the procession, you know, yelling out to the gates, open up, right? Who is it? It's the King of Glory. Here's what it says in Revelation 3.20. The King of Glory is knocking. He says, see, I stand at the door and I'm knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. May we be people who long, who desire God so much that we'd let go of all the other stuff that we talked about this morning. And may we be people who open the door. May we be revived. I want to see a great change. I do. But it's not going to happen apart from us getting alone, drawing a circle, and saying, God, would you just start right here? And that's the invitation this morning. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance Church Sermon Podcast. To contact us or find out more information, visit rin-church.org.